Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forest Shirts Podcast, What It Means. We're exploring the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Before we get into our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. If you can fill out a survey at for.com slash podcast, that's F-O-R-R.com slash podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. We have two guests with us today, Senior Analyst Emily Collins and VP and Principal Analyst Sucharito Kadali to discuss where we are in the retail market as it relates to loyalty and really responding to a very dynamic and changing customer. Welcome, both of you. Happy to be here. Very excited to be here. So let's start with the premise that customers in the retail environment operate as free agents. They can shop as they will. They can discover as they will. They can do what they want. They're not subject to a contract or terms in any way, shape, or form. And so there's two parts to that. One is loyalty is in part the glue that tries to bring them close in so that they at least runs a predictable business. And two is it forces them probably more so than any other provider out there to really know their customer. So I'll start with what is a kind of a simple question is, where are retailers in both of those dimensions? And I'll start that with you, Emily. So in terms of where they are with, with loyalty, I would say that retailers are trying to move past the traditional model of retail loyalty programs, which is essentially rebate programs or co-branded private label credit card programs. So you have seen in the past year and a half or more of a slew of retailers starting to launch what they call tender neutral tiers. So anyone can join the program. You don't have to have the credit card to earn the benefits. So Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, more recently Gap Brands is piloting a tender neutral program. It actually has a different name than the credit card, but they're piloting it in certain markets. So there's certainly a desire to start to capture more customer data than just the people who are willing to sign up for the credit card. Um, However, most of the programs today are very transactional. They are very rebate focused. A lot of the retailers that I talk to don't have a great relationship with their loyalty program. And what I mean by that is they view it as sort of a margin killer or just another discount off the products and services that they offer. But in essence, that's what they are for some, which is if it's just delivering a the same product at a lower price just because I sent you the rebate. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily drive loyalty. It simply drives the transaction at a lower price point. Right. And I get a lot of questions these days about like how to drive more engagement or uh, better emotional loyalty. So I've been writing a lot about that recently around emotional measurement and how loyalty is behavioral, which is how a customer acts versus emotional, which is how the customer feels about those interactions. And not very many brands are tackling that, but they're starting to think about maybe in a very tactical way how they can start to engage emotionally so you have benefits that are more service-based or directly related to the customer experience, early access to sales. So still very focused around the, the buy and transaction, the buy phase and transaction, but still thinking about how do we draw that customer closer to us and and ideally demonstrate the brand promise and the best customer experience. So structurally, are loyalty programs serving the customer or are they serving the vendors and making sure that there's enough velocity in the products? I mean, where, where does loyalty sit within these retailers and who is it primarily for? So it sits within marketing. And I would say the goal or where you want to be is that it's about the customer and appreciating them and rewarding them and showing them that you value their business. 
But unfortunately, most programs are designed as to like, what can we get out of the customer? What additional interaction? Because if you think about it, they have to demonstrate quarterly what they've done um, in many cases, or or they're strapped for cash and are struggling. And, and that is really what people are looking at is the bottom line uh, versus how are they investing in the relationship and what are they getting back out of it? And there's not necessarily an appetite to have that patience. Well, part of it is understanding your customer. So I think going back to your original question, how well do retailers understand their customers and their motivations and emotional states? So from a marketing perspective, I would argue that they don't understand their customers very well. Mm-hmm. So marketing calendar versus what when do our customers want to hear from us? Retailers operate very much on like a seasonal cycle. Um, but if you look at retailers like Macy's who relied on back to school and prom for certain certain surges in sales, uh, rent the runways, cutting them off at the knees. But yet they're they're not saying, well, what are the other times of the year they're trying to compete with rent the runway and and try and figure out how they can win that business back versus thinking about, well, how do our how is customer behavior changing? What's the new reality of our customer base? Uh, And how do we fix that? And loyalty programs are supposed to ideally give you that insight because customers have raised their hand and said, hey, I want to be a part of this program, more relevant communications. I want you to know me and treat me differently. Um, Yes, I want to save money, but I'm also interested in special treatment. And and I don't see that brands are really getting there. Um, Even if you just look at email, which is the workhorse workhorse of marketing, they're treating customers regardless of where they are in the value chain, regardless of their customer lifetime value or their customer value, the same as a new customer who just signed up for emails for the first time. There's not a lot of differentiation and personalization there. Situated, do you have anything to add there from a retailer understanding their customer? Yeah, I think that um, the the truth is is that retailers are highly transactional. I mean, I've worked at retailers before. I work with retailers um, every day, and they're just focused on driving tomorrow's sales, often driving today's sales. And discussions are always about what can we do to get our sales up right now. So it ends up being highly, highly promotional. Um, That is their, that's the single biggest lever that they have. And that's what ends up um, causing a lot of angst at, at virtually every retailer that is out there. It is very, very difficult for them to step back and, and ask these bigger philosophical questions of what does my customer want? What adjacencies could I even provide that could be really valuable? I mean, one of the things that I, I push retailers to really think about is what are the assets that you had, even outside of your, your physical product in your stores, that that a customer could possibly be interested in because that's where your opportunity for differentiation is. I mean, Amazon unleashed that because they had so many assets that they were then able to monetize, whether it was their digital products or some of their technology savvy or, um, you, you know, kind of this, this uh, you know, great um, logistics infrastructure. And my question, if you're a department store, for instance, you have access to the best and biggest and most prominent designers out there. You have front row seats at Fashion Week. Why is why are those not some of the opportunities that you then give to some of your best customers? You know, why wouldn't you expose some of those approaches and those those places that you have not just giving, you know, just these rebates back to your customers? I mean, one of the most beautiful corporate campuses in the world is Nike's campus. And, you know, Nike has this really, really, you know, passionate user base. 
you know, I think one of their great untapped resources is to just give tours of the campus to their customers. And, um, you know, you can get a tour if you know somebody and, you know, kind of you can pull strings. But, but those are the kinds of things that I think could really unleash some of that loyalty within retail. And we see, like, car manufacturers doing that all the time. You have, like, you know, kind of European delivery of your Porsche or your BMW. Um, why not do something similar in retail as well? Why have this – it always ends up reverting back to – discounts, promotions, sales, 10% off. Yeah, I actually love that, Suchirita, because I think when you talk to retailers, there's like this mountain to climb where they're like, oh, we need a better loyalty value proposition. And all they think about is like, what else do we need to do? But in reality, they probably have a lot of assets that they could leverage just in positioning. It's not about necessarily creating new stuff and spending all this money creating new experiences. It might just be better packaging what you already have in a way and presenting it to the customer in a more compelling way. Um, I think in Atlanta, Turner Field, uh, back when Lexus was a big sponsor, they had a Lexus parking lot where Lexus car owners could get better parking and a special parking pass. And I think there's a lot of retailers that could do something similar. But to your point, it's really hard to take a step back and look at this broader value proposition, this longer term view when you're being measured on same day sales year over year. And that is so specific and so transactional. Does a retailer think of loyalty as I wish my customers to be loyal to me? Or do they think of loyalty as I want to do things to engender loyalty? Which is it? I think it's what else can we get the customer to do for us? And so, which goes to customer lifetime value, which is not a measure of value customers get, but value customers give. Right. And that's where you start to get into the this notion of loyalties as loyalty programs as bribery programs. Because it's like, well, what else can we eke out of the customer? Not um, how do we show them true appreciation or... Uh, engender engender loyalty with them in a way that extends their relationship with us. It's always focused on we need to show incremental sales. We need to show incremental average order value. Everything's incremental versus we want to just maintain this already high value relationship. So we have a set of very visible failures in the retail space. And one of the arguments out there is it's because of digital. It's not because of organically the way they think and the way they operate. It's because of Amazon and other digital entities that are simply eating them for lunch. This is a different argument. This says there's something inherently broken in the way they begin the sentence. I mean, that argument, from my perspective, is a cop-out. It's a way to push the blame off of them. And, and not to say that Amazon isn't a force to be reckoned with or that digital isn't something that's impacting them and how they do business. And if they can't keep up in digital, they'll die. It's not just Amazon's fault. No, it's not. But going back to, is there something inherently flawed at the core of the way they think of themselves in the market? They think of themselves as the distribution channel trying to drive the next transaction, or do they think of themselves as inseparable from a customer, human being's life and offering them value, which ultimately brings loyalty and money to the game. Is there something about their posture that be- in the beginning of that sentence? 
Well, most retailers, especially um, the, some of the ones, for instance, that are challenged now, like a Toys R Us and are going to go out of business soon, um, that still operate their business or operated their business in um, in 2000, you know, in the 2000s, the way that they were operating their business in the 1980s. And it was very much a mentality of the suppliers to determine what products go into the stores. And it is um, it's about this expression of stack them high, watch them fly. And um, unfortunately, that those are the, the, the paradigms that have really shifted, um, which is everything from the fact that, you know, there, there is the ability to get, you know, a wider variety of product in different places. And many of these large merchants haven't adjusted to, you know, just notions of supply and demand. It, you know, one of the things that always baffled me, I worked at Toys R Us at, at, at one point in my past, and Q4 was their biggest time of year, and there were always certain hot sellers that would sell out in Q4. And yet, even though it was inevitable that certain products would sell out, the company actually marked those products down on key dates rather than hold them back or even raise the price as you got closer to December 25th. And that always struck me as an opportunity that was completely under leveraged. It's like the basics of supply and demand that, you know, everyone from, from Uber to Amazon has down pat with dynamic pricing. Um, it was just these old orthodoxies of retail that you price in a certain way and, you know, you, you have the merchandise that your suppliers send to you and that's the way you do business. And unfortunately, that was completely irrelevant by 2018. So you, you've talked about loyalty in some part as a price and velocity game, which is how low can I go and how fast can it go? And when you look at entities like Amazon or REI, what they're doing is providing services alongside the loyalty program. You get to, you get to be involved in me differently or Amazon's reteaching us about fulfillment, which is I'll do things that you probably couldn't have imagined five years ago. How much is, is the price velocity so embedded that it can't get exchanged out for something that's more additive? So from a loyalty program perspective, about two-thirds of U.S. consumers feel that loyalty programs save them money. So the savings component of a loyalty program is pretty embedded. Uh, but I would argue that many brands think just about the percentage discount as like, okay, 10% is a good amount to give. Sort of sort of optimizing it basis. What what price point gives me the best right. margin with the best velocity? But they're not necessarily thinking about the perceived value that the consumer perceives in terms of the percentage off. Or uh, they, they're not necessarily testing, uh, you know, they're looking for the magic number versus saying there are going to be some customers or even, you know, the, the premise that a loyal customer is less price sensitive. So... You don't, ha- you don't have to give them a bigger offer to get them to come back because they're already more likely to shop with you in the first place. Or back to Sutrita's point, they might just want visibility into the designer. They might want an insider access, view right. towards- Early access right. to something. Right. First, first, first right of refusal, first dibs. So who's bucking the trend from a loyalty program perspective? Like, Are there organizations who have come to this realization that- how they're operating is in a 20-year-old model, and they're changing the game. I mean, you had mentioned Lexus, but that was like a, a point. And they don't even do that anymore. Yeah. That was, well, it's a car maker. And that yeah, was an auto well. manufacturer. Right. I would argue Starbucks um, has done – I mean, they certainly have a rebate component to their loyalty program, but I would argue 
um, the most recent game changer was just more mobile order ahead. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge value add. It is a service to their best customers that enables them to get in and out of the store really quickly and to get the drinks that they want efficaciously. Right. The currency is the time and convenience, not the discount or the, the free the free thing. Right, right. You know, use the example of, of GameStop in the past where, you know, as Emily said, um, loyalty programs are this double-edged sword where the, the bad side is, is that it costs you something and it's this margin suck. And um, one of the things that GameStop has done is that they uh, have created this other asset. It's a magazine where they sell advertising on it and off of it. And um, that can help to pay for some of the benefits for a higher tier loyalty program. So, other other creative approaches, other benefits that pay for themselves is is a is a huge way that you can um, you know create create value to that loyalty program. Um, the, I have a, another example that I thought was really really interesting. It was it actually came from a university, and if you think of like kind of universities and university donations um, being you know kind of their own version of, of you know kind of customer spend and you know how do they generate um, loyalty. To, with their alumni, I'd heard of one business school basically renting out the Hamilton Theater and allowing alumni the opportunity to have their own private showing of Hamilton. And it, they had to pay for their tickets, and um, you know it wasn't like it was free, but just to even have access to that. And then there was like a Q and A with the cast after. So. These are the kinds of things. It's just um, you know thinking completely outside of the box, and it often requires you know a different skill set. It requires a different team to envision these kinds of offerings and pull it together. It's almost like an event planning organization that that you need um, you know to execute things like this. But but when you are able to pull off something that is that special. That is that's really the the trick to cementing that type of loyalty. There is a talent component here, right? That it's not just how the retailer is organized or maybe these like legacy systems that they have, but really a mind shift in how people within the organization, whether it's marketing or wherever they sit, think about driving loyalty. That it's, you know, philosophical in nature, but also like a skill set that people have to have to build these experiences to extend that loyalty. Yeah, no, I would say that it's a it's a cre- it's a job that's almost as creative as anything. It's it often some of the best initiatives will come out of a strategic planning group, and not even every retailer has a strategic planning group because it ha- does have to be very forward looking. It has to have a very long range uh, look at the ROI and the lifetime value of the customers because this isn't going to drive sales immediately. And I think, too, some of this gets into some of the new rules of marketing that we're writing out about on the B2C marketing team about being human, helpful, and handy, being empathetic, uh, solving problems, not trying to get customers to do things or thinking about, like, the interaction or the transaction. And there are – I actually think Under Armour is doing some really interesting things, and they're amassing – and this isn't a loyalty program per se. And actually, Sutruti, you mentioned Nike. They have Nike Plus and all of these different things that are, could arguably be called a, a loyalty program because it has some of the components where people have to register and they participate and they get stuff in return for exchanging information and offering up information. And we use Under Armour a lot as an example of someone who's succeeding or do, testing a lot in post-digital 
and, and thriving in that post-digital environment because they're taking stuff like MyFitnessPal and Smart Shoes, and they're not saying, we're going to take your information once you share it with us and just send you offers for shoes. I'm sure they will. But they could also say, hey, we know that you've run 500 miles this year. The shoes that you have aren't the right shoes for that kind of mileage. Like, congratulations on getting healthier, and here's this. Or here's a playlist programmed to your gate to motivate you. We know you're training for a big race. So it's it's less about here's a shoe and we think we've targeted you based on this list. It's we know you better, we understand you, and, and we can actually be a part of that experience or that interaction versus – Oh, uh, 50% off running shoes. I want to talk about four of the companies that we have brought up so far. Under Armour, Nike, Lexus, and Amazon. None of them are traditional retailers. And I guess my question goes to something, again, hopefully fundamental. Is there something afoot, meaning the combination of where digital has encroached on retail, one. Two is where folks like Under Armour and Nike have moved from an apparel company to being the retailer meaning they're bypassing the channel. And the third one is what Amazon is doing or Instacart or others, which is being a fulfillment, meaning they're actually playing the role of what you expect from retailers. They're delivering the goods to you. Is there a fundamental squeeze happening on whether it's the big box stores or just retail all in that is underpinning this? Well, I, I mean, certainly the, the the retailers that both Amazon and the brands have challenged are these multi-category big box players in the department stores. There's no question about that. And that just showcases, um, you, you know, kind of the challenges that, that those groups have, have faced. Um, but it's also... Um, because, you know, kind of when they, they're, those are the transactional companies. They're the ones that are just looking at, um, we've got to make our numbers. And how do we make our numbers? We give free shipping and, you know, discounts on what's in the store tomorrow to friends and family. But I do think there are some retailers in that category, Sucharita, that are at least testing different types of models. If you look at Nordstrom, they are constantly testing new types of stores. Um, they just launched a men's shop in New York City. Uh, Neiman Marcus is investing a lot in data and analytics to try and take the information that they're collecting from their customers and really uh, use it to better address them. They've also tested a lot of uh, new technology in their stores in terms of conversational interfaces or um I think at one time they were testing in the beauty department. If you go to a beauty counter and you get a makeover, you go home with all this makeup and then you don't know how to use it again. Um, and so they had this this digital technology where it would essentially take your photo in the mirror. It was like a smart mirror. And they would give you a list of everything that you had and then you could watch back how to apply it or something like that. But it just it just strikes me that one argument is that retail is going through this evolutionary process. And some are, are accepting it and some are not. The other argument is there's something sort of tectonic underneath this thing. And loyalty is one expression, which is the, the model has aged out. And the other is structural, which is the retailer as a physical entity. The, the, the box stores being the best representation of that is possibly also aging out or simply less valuable or less naturally differentiated before it used to be presence in zip code. Now you just have to do so much more than that. Is this an evolutionary issue or is this a more tectonic question that's in front of retailers? 
there's the, the question of can you can you know opening new types of stores and um, new offerings like subscription models um, can that or rentals will that will that transform your business? Um, a, a lot of the categories that we've a lot of the retailers that we've talked about that have been challenged are in sectors like apparel, for instance, which has been facing a lot of deflationary forces over the last several decades, and um, that's been as much of a factor that has that is a tectonic shift. And what do you do in light of that? Like, how do you how do you survive and thrive when um, you know fundamentally the category that is your your reason for being is, um, is 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 one where people are spending less? And that's why you do see sometimes some really funky things happening, like Urban Outfitters buying a pizza company. Um, it bought this company, Vetri Pizza, which is one of the best restaurateurs in Philadelphia. And the idea was, you know, exactly what we just described, which is that apparel is challenged, that the restaurant industry has seen a 6% CAGR for the last 50 years. You know, is there something else that Urban can lean into um, industry-wide to help them um, retain customer loyalty and, and be relevant to, to their, their, their customers? How much can they flex their brand? Um, there's a little retailer that sells T-shirts, that's their core business, and, and kind of soft goods called Marine Layer. And um, the top floor of a number of their stores is um, a loft that they've converted to a rental that they put on Airbnb. You know, so just really, really thinking outside of the box with respect to where does your brand flex to, especially if your core category is one that's either mature or potentially declining um, because of a very competitive landscape. How many retailers take that step, Sutrita, which is you just described a company taking a step back and saying, what's my reason for being? What's my purpose? And building a strategy new against what they perceived to be their purpose that day and then for the you know, days following versus what was I doing yesterday and can I do it better? How many retailers are taking that important step of saying things have changed significantly enough that I'm going to have to – I might have to rethink my purpose and therefore rethink what I do? Well, I think that when they do, they often do it too late. And the time to do it is when you are in hyper growth, because that's when you have the chance to pivot. That's when you're given the most forgiveness by the market to, you know, trying new things. I mean, that's really what I think has been one of the the most successful things about Amazon is that they have, and even you know other large technology companies is that they they've often tried new things when when things are already good when they have the latitude to experiment. Unfortunately, a lot of retailers will come to this discovery that they need um, to do something different when they're mature or declining, and they don't have the forgiveness of the street to make that shift. And it's often too late at that point. Um, so a company like Zara should be thinking now what's their next step, not, you know, how can they continue to mine, you know, fast fashion. Is there a way to get out of that ditch, though? I mean, that seems like the opposite of a virtual cycle, you know, like you're just in this hamster wheel of having to report on earnings on a quarterly basis or sales or whatever and not having the latitude to change. I mean, how do you take a step back and kind of blow up your strategy and start anew? 
Well, it needs to come from the top. Um, I mean, if the CEO is an old school merchant, which for a lot of retailers, that that is what happens. But there are visionary CEOs and, um, you know, often they're in technology, but it's almost bringing that mentality to to retail and bringing that mentality to other consumer facing businesses. And in some cases, it it. So coming from the top, that's a big challenge because if you're in marketing, you don't necessarily have a say in who the head of your company is. Um, but I, I do think that there's an opportunity, and we've talked to some retailers that are able to get budget um, or at least some marketing departments that are better able to secure budget if they call it a test rather than trying to start things over. So they're still doing their day job, which is driving same-day sales and all of these things but trying things in small pockets where there's an exit strategy because it's just a test. Um, But if it works, then they can. And I think some of this just comes back to that first question that you asked, which is getting back to the understanding of of who your customers are and what they're looking for from you versus what you're looking for from them. And and so maybe doing some tests around that in terms of what resonates and, and in some cases just stop sending so many promotional emails because you're just training your customers to wait for 60% off or 70% off or whatever the next discount's going to be. So we, we've had a discussion about the retail market and whether it's an evolutionary game or whether there's something tectonic happening. And not all parts of retail, but certain parts of retail. And one argument could be that loyalty is a symptom, meaning loyalty is sort of accepts the idea it's an exhausted business model and tries it best it can to eke out the longest tenure of that model possible. It's like, I'll get to the next transaction of a model that I know, maybe this is your, your point, Jen, I know is in decline or I know is essentially ends poorly. Where's retail in 18 months and what has to be true for it to be the most, the best version of that model? Well, obviously, retail doesn't go away. Consumers continue to spend trillions of dollars in the U.S. alone and, and you know, many times more than that globally. Um, people have to buy clothes. They have to buy consumer electronics. I mean, those that, the, the categories aren't going away. But what I think will change is um, the product mix and the assortment will evolve and um, who the sellers are will evolve. We'll certainly see more brands selling direct to consumer. Um, and you'll see this, the, the companies that do remain evolving um, everything from the store layout to the assortment that's in the store. And you may see some strange bedfellows. I mean, Amazon just announced um, that it was going to work with Best Buy, you know, to sell some of its electronics products. Um, so, so I, I think that um, you, you'll it, it's 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 not going to disappear, um, but the companies that will go away are the ones that that don't evolve and create new formats or you know embrace the new products that shoppers want to purchase. I also would hope that the thinking around loyalty evolves a little bit where it's it's not so much a tactical program that's really focused on driving transactions, but rather it is an outcome of many tactics and ideally strategies toward understanding who the customer is, what their expectations are, meeting and exceeding those expectations, and also building more of a two-way street with the customer versus, hey, what else can we get you to do for us? More so a meaningful 
appreciation and, and reward, whatever that means. It could be a discount, but it could be something else entirely. So you're a business person and you're listening to this podcast. You see the writing on the wall. You're seeing some of your peers in failure or failing mode. And there are some stark realities that go to some of the basics of what Forrester does, which is you have to orient your company to the realities of the customer. And so you have sort of this deep breath before the plunge. What is the plunge? What do they have to do now to right the ship, to get healthy or change the game? I think that um, every every company, can, whether you're a retailer or not, especially if you're in a highly competitive industry, you need to do really two things. One is, what is your customer spending money on? Where are they leaning into? What is important to them? What's part of their product portfolio um, that they, they, they purchase and that they, they engage with? And then you need to take stock of yourself as a company and ask yourself, what are your assets? What are um, possible adjacencies for services, products, new business ideas um, for yourself? And is there an overlap between the two, between what the customer is spending money on and what you have the ability to offer? And if there is there is overlap, that's really, I think, um, where where various companies can think about pivoting into, and um, if you if you don't go through that exercise, um, I think you're selling yourself short. So, and I also have two things. Um, so one is it's not just about bracing for the impact, although that, I'm sure that's part of it, but thinking about starting small, right? So a lot of times it, it feels like a very daunting, overwhelming task to try and change the inertia of an entire company. And that's a big burden for anyone to carry. And and that's not necessarily their responsibility. So thinking about what they can control within their own individual role or their individual environment um, and, and maybe innovating within the little things. So for example, if you send a lot of emails and they tend to be promotional, you know, maybe you won't send fewer promotions, but maybe you add something else to the email that's a different call to action, that's a different recommended next best step for your customer based on maybe some of those overlaps that you identified per Sergerita's advice. And then the second thing is also thinking about not just what you have to do next, but what you might be able to stop doing as well. So are there things do, that you're doing today that aren't giving you the, that are kind of sucking your energy out that maybe aren't giving you the return that you could stop doing and not just thinking about what else you have to do, but what can you stop doing and start doing instead? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you both. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.